Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. I want to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. As we continue our series, Advent in Exodus. And this morning, we have quite a lot of text to read. So, strap in. We're going to pick up in verse 7 of Exodus 33, and I'll just read for a while. So here Moses writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in Exodus chapter 33, verse 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people." And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. 
And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. We're not done. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. This is covenant renewal. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended, as he said he would, in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So let's pray together. Oh Lord, what a text. We need your help. Help me to speak straight and true. Let the arrows of your word go directly into hearts. I pray that you would take the souls of everyone gathered here into your hands. And you would peel back our eyes spiritually. Some of us really do need that. Help us to see your glory, not just for the first time, if that's needed, 
but a second time, and a third time, and a thousandth time, all the way to the end. We need to see your glory. So give us that desire, that longing, that yearning above all things to see your glory. And in your mercy, show it to us. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've heard the saying, a sight for sore eyes. A sight for sore eyes. Uh, You return after being long in a distant land, and home is a sight for sore eyes. It's been a long, hard semester, I hear. And the vacation date arrives. Exams are over. And it is a sight for sore eyes. It's been one of those dreadful, dreary, difficult, hard days. I come home, walk in, I see Jenny. And she is a sight for sore eyes. Maybe like Moses, you've labored in a wilderness for a really long time amongst a grumbling people. But revitalization is beginning to take root. Uh, The stem, you see it, right? The bud, you see it. The flower, new creation is springing up. You see all this. And as you see it, it becomes a sight for all the sore eyes. Sore eyes imply long hours, maybe a lack of sleep. They imply observation all the way to the point of exhaustion. They could imply grief. Groaning, crying, despairing pools of tears. Sore eyes imply heartache. And there's no heartache. There is no heartache like the heartache of God desertion. The God forsakenness that every single one of us in this room this morning actually do deserve. Our sins will cause sore eyes. Is there anything to see that might help that soreness? Is there a sight for that soreness? Is there hope for sinners? Of course, I trust you all go about your every day desiring nothing more than to peer intensely into the infinite expanse that is the glory of God. But seriously... Do you? Have you ever seen the radiance of the glory of God? If you're a Christian, you have. But have you seen it today? Did you see it any day this past week? And when you do see it, what exactly is it that you see? And why does what you see, why does that actually matter for your life? I think folks whose eyes are sore because of sin know that there is not a sight so lovely as God in Christ crucified. Friend, you demand to see God? I won't believe otherwise. Beloved, you think you've sinned yourself into judgment? You've sinned yourself into oblivion? What hope is left for me now? 
Or you're sure that you have met the postmodern Paul? You're sure that you have met the absolute sinfulest human being that has ever existed on the face of the planet? What hope can there be for them? What hope can there be for their conversion? To all of that, God says, come and see. Come and see. And so we'll begin here by sharing Moses' concern. Just prior to our passage, Israel has broken whatever faith they had in God. It's a very famous passage. He's already raised up Moses for them. He's delivered them out of Egypt by the plagues. God has distinguished them as His people, same as He did at the Red Sea. And in that wilderness, He'd been their shepherd and He'd been their supply. He had taken bitter water and He had turned it sweet. He had given them bread from heaven. We heard that a week ago. He'd given them water from rocks. He'd given them impossible victories. A very small nation, these really powerful kings, they beat them all. Impossible victories. His presence in a cloud, His presence in the fire, revelation on top of Mount Sinai, and all of it nestled within the nice gospel promise that we get in Genesis 3.15. The people had seen all this, and more, much more, But at the first delay of Moses up on the mountain, they begin to make faithless demands. Aaron, uh, we don't know what's happened to Moses. He's lost to us. It's your turn. Time to take his mantle. Make us gods that we can see. Make us gods who can lead us. Make us gods that we can understand, we can grasp, we can define, and we can control. And so, they get some jewelry together, and they make a golden calf, and and then they bow down to this, and they serve this golden calf, and they worship it, and they hail it as their Savior. All that's after they've been delivered. And the irony is that that came to define them like a cow's neck. So also was their hearts. They were stiff and hard to turn. And so, if we learn anything from Israel, it's that seeing is not believing. They didn't believe what God had given them to see, And what they'd made to see was not a God worth believing. It wasn't a God at all. My friends, we need to understand Satan is a skilled deceiver. And slavery to sin is the most terrible blindness. And it's only because Moses intercedes for them that Israel is not instantly ended by the justice of God. Moses is able here to negotiate with long-suffering patience, divine forbearance, in the hope of an atonement that Moses cannot make. That's right before our passage. You actually see it in chapter 32, verse 30. God tells Moses, uh, that atonement that you're talking about, that's not for you to make. For now, what you really need to know is whoever has sinned against me, they're going to pay for it. 
And that central to that payment is that God-awful loss of the presence of God. It's going away. So now we're butting up against our text where God gives this leading, however disastrous word in chapter 33, verse 3. He essentially says, I'll help you take Israel into Canaan, but that's as far as I will go. I won't be among you there. Because if I was, I would consume you. Because they are such a stiff-necked people. So, they can have the land. They can have the promised land. But without the Lord. Would that be enough for you? To put it maybe in more uh, native terms for us, would heaven be enough for you if God weren't there? Not if you've truly seen God. As you have, you would know what's the point. Heaven without God is just hell. It's judgment. And in type, that is what's being threatened here. Or something like this. It's option A, God dwells among us and we're just all firebrands for His justice. Or option B, God leaves us. He deserts us. He forsakes us and we're left to ourselves, which is none the better. Either way, it's bad. Either way, this is death for us. Either way, it's judgment unless a compromise can be struck. And that compromise is what we call the tent of meeting in our verses 7 through 11. And you'll note, Moses set it up where? Store that away. Outside the camp, far off from the camp. Something else would happen outside the camp as well, later on in the Bible. Okay? Outside the camp, far off from the camp. So if you wanted to meet with God, you had to go where God said, I'll meet you here. You had to take leave of that congregation, Israel, in order to hold friendly communion with God. Not the kind of, not the kind of congregation you want to be a part of. Okay? And as Moses led in this, it says the people would rise at their tents until Moses vanished into God's tent. And as soon as Moses vanished into the tent, God would appear. And then the people seeing it would appear to worship. It says in verse 9, the cloud would stand at the door and God would speak with Moses. How so? Face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. Though it was outside the camp, what we're seeing here is that a way had been made for God to dwell nearby. <laughs> Certainly they're thinking, oh, for the day when all God's people would know the kind of friendship and the kind of access that Moses had with God. Over the day when, like Joshua in verse 11, all God's people could just stay there in the presence of God. It's coming. 
Now, the tent of meeting then is almost a parenthesis in the text. It's inserted to give the backdrop for a conversation between friends. Okay? It's a bridge from what God has justly threatened to how God might not justly execute that. In other words, is there any hope of reconciliation between the one holy God and this, His very sinful people? That's what Moses now bears on his heart outside the camp in the tent of meeting. It's what he brings before the Lord. That's the concern that he shares with God. The question for us is, do we share the same concern. In the light of our sinfulness, do we need to be reassured of God's heart for His people? Maybe you've been sharing the gospel with someone, and it's just not gone very well, and you're losing hope. Do you need to be reassured of God's heart for sinners? Do you need to be reassured, perhaps, of God's own heart for you, the sinner? Well, let's hear what Moses has to say here. If you look now to verses 12 and on, his talk with God is basically this. Lord, you've given me conflicting data points. (laughs) Uh, You've told me some things that don't seem to fit together. You've told me, you're my friend. And that you're for me. And that I should have great hope then in delivering this people into the promised land just like you commissioned me to do. Only now, you've understandably threatened to withdraw. And as yet, you've revealed no substitute. What is a friend to do? Please show me. Moses is laboring. Verses 13 to 16. Moses is laboring to retrieve hope in God. How is this thing going to succeed? This is your people, Lord. This is your plan. Help me now to make sense of how you plan to bring your people all the way home to you. In short, Moses lays his concern at the feet of God's concern for his glory. Does our sin... Does their sin bring your glory to an end? Will you let that happen? Will it confound the Lord? Or, is there more of God's glory to see than what Moses had seen to date? It should be instructive how Moses knows It's only God with them that distinguishes them from all the godless people around them. That's instructive, isn't it? 
God makes His people. God defines His people. And not the other way around. Would that our churches knew better what Moses knew so very well here in Exodus. Better to die in a wilderness than take one more step forward godless. Such a step would just be backwards. And so, the presence and rest God is saying, I'll give that to you, Moses. This mediator, Moses, now pleads for the people. He's desperate for it. And is his desperation, is it ours? Far away from, take the land, forget God. (laughs) Do we plead, Lord, take all you need, take all you want, take all you must. Whatever it takes, just leave us with yourself. Only give us that heaven on earth to the end, or we are going to be ruined with Moses. Are we in earnest for more of God? Or are we kind of settled in what we know? We think, I've seen enough. Or maybe we think, I've seen all there is to see. Oh dear. Moses is asking for an advance, verse 13, on God's self-disclosure. I mean, Moses has seen a lot of God. But he needs to see more. And God has shown Moses a lot of God. But he has more to show. He's the Lord. He's the faithful God. He's the great I Am but Moses wants the one in the cloud (laughs) uh, to become less cloudy. Okay? He longs to see, is the I am also the I will do this? Okay? And that brings us to the precipice of glory. We share Moses' concern Come to see the Lord's answer to that concern, picking up in 33.17. Indeed, Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. I will do. To which, verse 18, Moses gives that great cry. Sore eyes and all. You know he's been crying. Please show me your Glory. We can thank Moses for doing that because God obliges. Beloved, God's answer, His answer, listen, take this with you for the rest of your life, whether you're nine or however old. Okay? Take it with you. God's answer to our deepest spiritual droughts and doubts is just this. See my glory. All the answers, all the assurances, all the aloes you need 
are in that sight, as you see it here in the text. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for these sinners? Is there any hope for that sinner? Is there any hope for this sinner? Is there any hope at all? That any of us, all of us, hell-deserving as we are, might yet find rest with God. Please show us your glory. And God, as we see it in the passage, is delighted to step further into the light when that's our request. I wonder, have you ever sought to define the glory of God? It's one of those phrases that we use a lot. The glory of God. Oh, glory. (laughs) Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And we go, what does that mean for my coffee drinking in the morning? How do I do that? We use that phrase a lot. We seldom define it. Probably because we think it's above us, and so rather than seeking the things that are above, we leave it abstract. Concrete is too heavy. We just leave it there. And in this way, we fail to see what God has shown precisely for our elation and for our encouragement. Jonathan Edwards once posed the question, what is it to glorify God? What is it to glorify God? And his answer to that was, is simply to rejoice in the glory that we see. Rejoice in the glory that we see. Problem is, we just don't see a whole lot of the glory of God. So we We don't have any joy. Not Moses. Please show me more. (laughs) I've seen a lot. I need more. More glory, please. So, let's talk about the glory of God because that's what God does in our text. And in doing it, we need to cobblestone some preliminary things together here. One is that what God says in chapter 33, verse 19, and what He says in chapter 34, verses 5 to 7, they're almost mirrors of each other. The difference is that in 33, 19, God's telling Moses what He is going to do, whereas in 34, 5 to 7, God's doing it. The one is like a sermon read the night before, like a sermon preview. And then the other is the sermon being actually preached. That's what's going on there. And talk about anticipation. (laughs) Myself and George and uh, most of the residents are going to a a conference in March. And uh, Coram Deo. And uh, so we're all excited about the preaching lineup, you know. It's like H.B. Charles and John Piper. We're Piper. We're like... Piper, and uh, Joel Beakey, and all these guys. And and Moses would hear that, and he'd be like, pull out my conference card. What do you know? Session one 
is titled Alpha and Omega. Wonder what the subject is. Oh, look, the glory of God. Who's the preacher? God. And just notice the setting. Mainly in 3321 through 344. The details do matter. God makes it quite clear. So we need to be clear about it. Seeing the glory of God like this, without some divine shield or covering, is a dangerous endeavor for sinful man and even for a man like Moses. In a day where we love to admire and doctor and preach our own glory, just think on that and feel it. Sinful creatures as we are, are so not God that we cannot see God's face and survive the sight we see. We are hardly so glorious that we can safely, much less arrogantly march into the presence of the glory of God without the provision of His grace. And how great then must that grace be? So here God says in verse 21 and moving forward, that's not conversation over. I will show you my glory. See, just beside me, there's a rock. Go and stand on that rock. And I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by in my glory, and then I'll take my hand away, I'll remove it, and you will see the radiance of the glory of God. Sort of. Moses will see the back of it but not the face of it. So then, as the morning dawns, the scene shifts from the tent of meeting to Mount Sinai, where the law was given and sin exposed and codified. Right there, God is going to give this great advance on His glory and by it, the hope of reconciliation. The only hope of reconciliation. As I said in reading it, this is a covenant renewal ceremony. They made those golden calves, they broke it. Is there any hope? Renewal. And it's God's glory as God that makes such renewal possible. So look with me at chapter 33, verse 19. And you'll see now that God first speaks of His glory in terms of all His goodness. All His goodness. That's how He leads. So, whatever else follows is not badness to be despised. It is not questionableness to be debated. It's goodness to be adored and worshipped. When Moses sees 
God. All he'll see is that God is good. Isn't that wonderful? And next then, it's out of that goodness that God will speak of His glory in terms of His name, which drops us down to 34, verses 5 to 7, where He actually does this. And as we arrive, we see God expositing, unfolding His name in a series of attributes. He's preaching, His being, His essence, His heart. It's probably the most famous sermon in the Old Testament. The Lord descends in the cloud, verse 5. And He stands in His mobile pulpit and He proclaims what we never should. Okay, We should not proclaim ourselves. But God can and must. So He proclaims Himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God. Are you ready for this? What if you had never heard this before? Think about it. Show me your glory, God. I want to see you. I want to know you. Okay. A God, merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Does that pair up with what you've thought of God in the Old Testament? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now watch this. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, there is a great mystery then at what one's called the blazing center of the glory of God, and we're going to come to it. Let's just pause to ponder the wonder that this could be and is in fact true. What if God had only preached the Lord, the Lord, a God just? What if God was only judge and only just? And yet what we're seeing here is that out of His goodness, He reveals His charity. He leads with it and He swells with it. The God who is, is a God who is truly love. And that's how, without compromising His justice... He can be merciful and gracious, forgiving, and so on and so forth. He is this everlasting fountain overflowing in holy love. And because He is such things, this God is predisposed and determined to act accordingly. It's very important. I think it's fair to say that to see His glory then is to set an expectation for how He's going to behave, how He's going to act, what He's going to do. 
We'll see, I think that's how Moses receives and pleads upon it. And what's more, if you return with me now to chapter 33, verse 19, it seems that's what God would have us take away from it. He speaks there, again, of His glory in terms of His determination, or we might say His will to be gracious. You see that? To be gracious and to show mercy. Isn't that glorious? God has it in Him to do what He must to save sinners. We need to feel that. When He could have said, and I will be just to whomever I will, and I will be wrathful, and I will be vengeful to whomever I will, or even all, and left it right there, and rightfully so, that's not what He says. What does He say? He says, I will be gracious. He doesn't even mention justice until you get down to 34. I will be gracious. He says, I will show mercy. So, and we hear that. You know why that may not be so glorious to us? Because deep down, we still think we're kind of good people. We don't need that. We have another way in with God besides His grace and mercy. So we almost might hear, I will be gracious, I will be merciful. We almost hear that as an insult. (laughs) Grace and mercy. Instead of the sinner's only hope of reconciliation. The seeing sinner hears that and finds it glorious. That's heaven. Heaven is in that. I will be gracious. I will show mercy. You got a new heart, you hear that, you go, that's heaven. One other addition we have to make, and it's the one that everybody loves, and it's that God speaks of His glory not just in terms of His will or His determination to be gracious, but of the sovereignty of that will. This is the pivotal verse Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9 in justifying God as the Lord of salvation. Read it carefully. He says, I will be gracious. Doesn't stop there. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And here's all I'll say about that right now. We see it in how Moses reacts to it. God's sovereignty in salvation is not bad news. It's so good. It's glorious news. Why is that? Because it means nothing can take the wheel of His will but Him. Nothing is so powerful as to change God or to change His mind. God is not like you and me. He is free will. 
in the sense that he does all that he pleases. All that's consistent with his good glory. He's above all the things that would overtake and govern you and me. And here's what that means. Believe this. More souls will be saved than would be saved if we knew all souls and were in control. To put it lightly, we were at a concert last night, and uh, they did a presentation on, um, you know, IJ, IJM justice uh, for internet, you know, whatever it is, and um, it was so, so interesting to me because rightfully, rightfully emphasized uh, the rescuing of kids that have been trafficked and all these kinds of things. I actually sat there and thought, but what about, what about the people who are doing the trafficking? Is there some kind of ministry to them in jail? Are we going to them to preach the gospel to them as well? Are they beyond saving? Just a thought. This is the glory of God. He saves sinners. There is not a one so bad. God is Almighty Savior. At His core, He exists to save really bad people. Such that He is determined to do so, whatever the cost and nothing can thwart His purpose. That is God's answer to Moses' concern. His answer is, see my glory. And that brings us to savoring Christ. The radiance of the glory of God. Do you see in verses 8 and 9 there, how Moses reacts to what he's just seen? The radiance of that display of His glory, however trimmed it is. Right? He's in the cleft of the rock. He's got a hand over His... Okay. However trimmed it is, it is still enough to flood Moses' heart and throw him down to the ground quickly in worship. He sees in it all he needs to plead for God's presence. Please continue to go with us. Please pardon our sins. Please take us as your inheritance. I see now, seeing your glory, you can and even will do this. Just believe God for that. What Moses sees again is God the Savior. I wonder, do you see Him in this? I told you this was an advance on the glory of God. That said, I'll tell you, it wasn't the finish line. What Moses saw of God in a cloud on Sinai was but a candle to God in Christ on Calvary. So, wherever your soul is this morning, just please listen. 
It was no coincidence that Jesus <laughs> made a habit, as on the sea one time, of passing by his disciples. He passed by them. He's making a statement when he does that. This is what God does. And I am He. Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. What He is, is this God in our text. <laughs> Come into the world and to you and me in the flesh. Isn't that amazing? Again, not a cloud covering, but a kind of covering, a flesh covering nonetheless. You want an attentive meeting? You want to know where you can go to seek the Lord? In His advent, Jesus became that tent of meeting. He became the place where you go to seek the Lord. And how is that? Mainly, by doing what Moses sought to do but couldn't because it wasn't His to do, and that is make atonement sins. Only God can do that. The Pharisees in what Janice read for us, Janet read for us, they weren't wrong. <laughs> Only God can do that. What was the issue? He was God. That's right. Yeah. You beginning to see His glory now? What is that mystery that I mentioned in chapter 34, verse 7? Again, it's at the pulsating heart of the glory of God. You look at 34, 7, this is what you'll find. God says, I will forgive sins. Did you hear that part? I'll forgive sins. But I will by no means clear the guilty. What just happened? There is a great mystery there. How can that be? You get the answer to that? You have seen God. You have seen the radiance of His glory. And yet, and yet, has a scene ever looked so inglorious as the cross of Jesus Christ? Do you see it? How sinners, having rejected and despised Him, led this Lord of glory outside the camp, outside the gate, seeing nothing of His glory on the way. And so up they went, Christ bearing His cross, and the one Moses in our text worshipped, they nailed to a tree. And though they tore at Him still, barking at Him, Save yourself, Jesus! What glory! He came for that, to save sinners like them. What's He doing on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He is how God could pass over former sins and remain both just and justifier of sinners. How the judge of all could forgive all. It's that on the cross, 
God proved just how determined He was to save His people from their sins. There is where He put His glory on full display as He counted our sins to His Son as Jesus bore and paid the penalty that we deserved as Christ was crucified and died for us was ever a glory like His. The answer is no. How glorious. The thief saw it. He looked upon a man beaten and battered and spit upon and ripped to shreds, nailed to a tree, and he saw glory. When he cried out to God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gave up his last breath. The centurion saw it. Surely that was the Son of God. Nicodemus saw it. Who goes and takes him down from the cross as a member of his kingdom? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They saw what Christ had said in John chapter 8. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, this is crazy, then, there, you will know that I am He. And that God has done it. What I'm telling you is that the blazing center of the glory of God is the cross. That's who God is. The cross upon which Jesus died. You want to see God? You want to meet God? You want to know Him? You want to praise Him? You want to worship Him? Take a stroll outside the camp to a place called Calvary and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Trust it, friend. You can be reconciled to God. You can be cleared of all your guilt, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only rock upon which you can stand and see God and live. Whatever you do this morning, do not let Him pass you Church, have you been weeping over your sins? Have you looked at your life recently and thought, I'm not going to make it. Surely glory is out of the question now for me. Is there in your mind's eye a heart too hard even for God to melt? Is there a person that you've sought out for Christ? You've sought them out and for what? Heartache and hopelessness. Got good news for you. There is a sight for those sore eyes. 
You've seen it before. You recall it? That light of the knowledge of the glory of God, not on the back, but on the face of Jesus Christ. The trick is to keep looking there. Is to turn and return and return your eyes upon the Lord with the same earnest plea as Moses here. Please show me your glory. And He will. He will do it. He'll show you Jesus. And in Jesus, again, talk about a sight for sore eyes. He's the radiance of God's glory. He is a sovereign hope, even for the most stiff-necked soul. How much more for you, if you've believed in Him? Maybe something to remember this Advent season. Let's pray together. Lord, Your Word is great. And You are great and glorious. Please help us now. Let Your Word do great work in each one of our hearts. Give us an appetite for God. Give us an appetite for Jesus that can never really be quenched. <laughs> Just grows and swells. Help us to see your glory and to have our soul satisfied there. In Jesus' name we pray.